Hello everyone, welcome to Guftagu Ki Guttaru. This is our 12th episode. Um, आज का एपिसोड हम मोस्टली इंग्लिश में रिकॉर्ड करेंगे क्योंकि जो हमारे स्पीकर हैं वो किसी एक भाषा में बात करना चाहते हैं और जो टॉपिक हम ले रहे हैं उसमें इंग्लिश में थोड़ी ज्यादा बातचीत आसानी से हो पाएगी सो so, इसलिए आज का हमारा टॉपिक जो है वो है टबू डिजायर्स एंड फेमिनिज्म और हमारे जो गेस्ट हैं वो है जया जो एक क्वियर किंकी फेमिनिस्ट एक्टिविस्ट हैं और राइटर हैं जो अपना वर्क गोवा और दिल्ली के बीच में डिवाइड करती हैं She is a founder member of the Kinky Collective, an activist group which seeks to raise awareness about kink and strengthen the BDSM community. So, welcome, Jaya. Thank you. Okay, so we'll jump right in. Firstly, like I would like to ask you, in your work with sexuality, sexual wellness, or um, sexual freedom, how have you come to understand desire, and are there some taboos around desire? so um, actually when i think about uh, my work uh, uh, many things come to mind so i just wanted to kind of uh, at the risk of being a little too uh, clinical uh, to say that uh, um, so i'll begin by saying i'm 59 years old okay so i have a lot of sort of rewinding to do so in my 20s i started to work with the uh, uh, feminist ngos okay so that's one set of sort of work things that i'll be referring uh, to uh, and that work was uh, largely with rural uh, women okay so that started in when i was in my 20s and that was the decade of the 90s okay then um, uh, fast forward to uh, when i was in my uh, 30s that's when i joined the queer uh, community and that's when queer activism began for me okay so the year uh, sort of 2000 huh? that 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 decade then uh, in my 40s is when i joined the uh, the bdsm uh, community uh, and uh, so that's whatever 2010 onwards and most recently i've been working on a book so i'll also refer to that uh and the book is on sex love and uh, indian politics through the lens of psychoanalysis so sorry to give this lengthy kind of thing but it will just make it easy for me to then refer to what uh, aspect of my work i'm uh, talking about yeah theek okay. hai so uh, yeah so i wanted to begin by sharing uh, something about uh, my work uh, with rural women uh, on sexuality as part of the feminist ngo that i worked with for over 20 years so um, so and i wanted to just give two uh, glimpses huh one is around uh, songs and the other is around gender based violence uh, work huh and i want to give these two uh, sets of examples to share with you what uh, uh, what emerged as uh, the understanding of taboo desires and the consequences for the people who expressed taboo desires huh so first is around songs so as uh, you know uh, many listeners might know that in uh, rural areas at least in north india uh, there is a tradition of uh, singing uh, uh, songs that are sexually very explicit uh, by women uh either uh, say uh, uh, if one is talking about hindu women in the context of holi ha huh? or uh, uh, or uh, then uh, when the barat comes uh, shaadi ke time hmm? uh, 
Um, so these are songs that uh, we actually sought out also. Anyway, you can't avoid them. If you're working in the field, you cannot avoid these uh, songs. But we actively went out and wanted to hear the songs, listen to the words, try and understand, you know, what was happening. What did they mean for the women? What was the kind of responses in the community? Hmm? So uh, basically, uh, the songs uh, really challenged many uh, sexual norms hmm? and many social norms and gender norms. So uh, one uh, favorite thing to do is to uh, humiliate the sasur uh, when uh, you know he comes uh, as part of the barat. Okay, so totally challenging this gendered uh, norm that women have to be, you know, like give a shower respect on uh, uh, elders and especially the, the in-laws. So, unki to puri like, So, then the other thing is um, in terms of uh, transgressions of the inter-caste type. So, lots of songs around uh, 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 sex or romance with a kumhar or with the chudi bechne uh, wala, you know, those kind of uh, songs. Then there were also songs which uh, were fewer that we heard, which were around uh, incest. Okay. Now, this is where uh, we as urban, middle class, educated women, you know, going out into the field, I think that is what freaked us out uh, the most you know with intercaste and all oh wonderful patriarchy oh wonderful challenge all these norms and uh but with the incest norms that was like a little difficult you know even for us to uh, uh stomach i'll share with you an example you can see whether you want to uh, keep it uh, or not uh and i want to share it actually precisely because it's uncomfortable making yeah so there's a song which has a line in which somebody is saying to a, a young man that to aisa bhai hai ki tu jo roti hai jab roti khata hai to apni behen ki chut mein jo pani hai usme usko uspe roti pe wo laga ke phir khata hai i mean can you imagine the level of explicit explicitness okay so, but our discomfort was also very productive, right? I mean, it tells you a lot. When you've been working on sexuality issues for like, you know, like 15 years or something, and then, you know, something's happening in your stomach because you're feeling quite <laughs> like shocked by something. So it's a, it's a kind of an interesting and important kind of space to be. Then uh, the other thing that we learned was that there was opposition from the young, from the children of the women, especially the sons uh, who were educated, you know, who were aspiring to be more uh, middle class. And so they were telling their mothers, like, stop singing these uh, dirty songs. You know, this is not respectable. So uh, just reflecting on, on this, like uh, two things. One is that the uh, the taboo nature of what was being expressed in these songs challenged uh, dominant uh, sexual and gender norms. And secondly, that there was a desire to punish the women who were expressing these taboo uh, desires, even in limited spaces, you know, like festivals and 
शादी के टाइम बट दिस एस्पेक्ट ऑफ पनिशमेंट इज अ रनिंग थीम विच आई काइंड ऑफ कीप कमिंग बैक टू एंड द ट्रांसग्रेसिव नेचर ऑफ टबू डिजायर्स Taboo desires are not just like, oh my God, like you know how exciting all that. Of course, it's there and it's hot, but it's always challenging some, uh, some existing uh, line that we have set up. Yeah. For yes. Us. Yes. Yes. Then the other example I wanted to give from my work in a rural context with the feminist NGO that I worked with uh, is with the uh, men um, and uh, in the context of uh, gender-based uh, violence. so we did many uh, intensive sexuality uh, trainings with uh, case workers uh, who worked on domestic uh, violence issues and uh, one very common uh, reason that women were coming to the case workers uh, uh, was uh, women saying that the husband wants them to perform anal sex or uh, oral sex you know wants uh, so this uh, desire on the part of their husbands uh even when there was no force or coercion involved this expression of these kinds of desires in itself was experienced as violence it was seen as being dirty okay now here uh it's important because it's men who are uh at the receiving end of this accusation that you know uh, so they are the ones who are experiencing taboo desires so after a lot of work with uh, the uh, the case workers uh, what they decided uh, was that the case workers that they uh, you know began counseling couple counseling in a sense uh, with people uh, consent from the wife and saying to the wife look as women we have known certain ways of having sex but there are other ways of having sex and maybe you can try maybe you can be open maybe this will also give you uh, pleasure so uh, uh, but also returning to that theme of taboo desires here again taboo what is seen as taboo desires is men wanting non uh, heteronormative uh, forms of uh, sex uh, and the punishment is that even the expression of this kind of a desire very quickly got and automatically got equated with violence and it's only because the case workers actually went through an intensive uh, process that they themselves were uh, handling these cases critically and uh, sensitively so yeah so wanted to share uh, uh, that from the rural context uh, and i also wanted to share from the work that i was doing for the book so in that um, i conducted an anonymous uh, online survey uh, it was an intensive survey not a large scale survey so about 30 people uh, responded and in that uh, there were people of different genders different uh, sexual orientations um, uh, mostly feminist although not entirely because these were people who i uh, knew personally and that's why i reached out to them because i didn't want those very you know yes and no abrupt kind of answers i wanted tasalli say for people to you know respond in detail generously and so i asked them uh, what are your hottest dirtiest fantasies and how do you feel about them okay so i'm going to read out uh, some examples from that and then share with you what uh, how that has 
contributed to my understanding of uh, uh, taboo desires um, and feminism. So, um, so the first uh, uh, example is from somebody who uh, was assigned female at birth. And I'll read out uh, what she uh, said, first about her fantasy and then about her feelings about her fantasy, okay? <clears throat> so she wrote, I recently find myself thinking a lot about being forcefully held down and penetrated in an outdoor space. My boyfriend introduced me to the pleasures of having sex on terraces and balconies. When people look at you without really knowing what's happening, they suspect, but they don't know. I think I want to take it further. I would like to be in a market, a pandal, and I want to be forced down and made love to. Sometimes I want to be held down by a woman, kissed by a woman, while being taken from behind by a man. In my fantasies, I'm always wearing a sari without any undergarments, and the sex only barely ruffles my clothes. In terms of her feelings about her fantasy, this is what she wrote. I've lived with a fantasy for a while, so now I don't think it's strange at all. The only thing that troubles me is that I'd like the sex and penetration to be forced. I don't understand it and find myself very troubled that I find that hot. I'm the cliched independent woman. I feel I need to understand something about myself. Why would an act of violation be attractive to me? So um, the, why I'm so struck by this particular fantasy and the feelings around the fantasy is that she is uh, touching many taboos in her fantasy, right? She, in her fantasy, uh, she is challenging the sexual norm, uh, which says that you should not have sex in a public space. She's challenging the sexual norm that you should not have sex with somebody from the same uh, gender or sex as you. She's her fantasy is challenging the sexual um, uh, uh, norm that you should only have sex with one person, right? So there are very many ways in which her taboo fantasy is challenging sexual norms. But what's very interesting and important is that the one that troubles her, the one that actually bothers her and she thinks there's a conflict, inner conflict, is around, uh, uh, is around consent and that she wants that uh, sexual act to be uh, forced. So this uh, helps us see that there are mainstream traditional norms, right? Which are not bothering her as she says, as a, she's an independent woman, like she sees herself as a modern woman, right? You know, she's actually enjoying breaking those uh, norms in a very clear cut way. But with this other norm, there's a, uh, what I call a yummy, yucky kind of response. Na? There's a kind of a delicious enjoyment, but there's also a uh, angst, there's also a worry, there's also a concern, kya ho hai? How can it be that I have a fantasy like this? Because the second set of taboos that's at work here is the feminist uh, taboo. Rather than the mainstream taboo, one can call it uh, either a modern taboo or even a feminist uh, taboo, according to which uh, sex uh, should always happen with mutuality. 
dignity, uh, you know, respect uh, and uh, consent, right? So that's a, uh, that's a, uh, so that is where the conflict for her uh, comes in. Hmm? Uh, similarly, I just wanted to share uh, another uh, uh, example. Uh, before that, uh, very quickly, there was a fantasy shared by a gay man, which was a rape fantasy. He wanted to be uh, raped in his fantasy. And about his feelings about his fantasy, he wrote that rape, he feels conflicted because rape is a gruesome reality for so many people which leaves trauma in its wake. So he was very troubled by this uh, fantasy. Uh, uh, the, the last example that I want to share is that of a trans man. And this is the fantasy that he wrote. My filthiest fantasy includes an extremely hardcore gangbang where a bunch of guys and I spend hours fucking a woman, sometimes multiple women, either by taking turns or double, triple penetrating her. The women, while never in distress, are always docile and obedient in these scenarios, seemingly enjoying their subservience to my and others' lust. The basic idea is that a bunch of dudes go at a woman, expecting every single one of their desires to be fulfilled, and they are never disappointed. A crucial part of this is that the women never complain about anything that I do to them, and neither does she ask me to do more of it. She is always perfectly content with whatever I do to her. And knowing that her only desire is to fulfill any and all of my and my friend's desires is the main thing that seems to get me off. In terms of his feelings about the fantasy, uh, this is what he wrote. As an avowed queer feminist, I have considerable amount of shame around this fantasy. I keep rationalizing it by reminding myself that even though the fantasy involves hardcore and rough handling of women and their total unquestioning compliance, those acts are all consensual. This makes me feel better for a while, but I return again and again to shame. Shame that my desire pivots so much around dominance and humiliation and overwhelming control on feminine bodies. So, uh, uh, again, we, we find that in terms of the sexual norms that his fantasy are breaking, he's not uh, bothered about the fact that there are more, there's more than one uh, person, for, for instance, uh, involved. That's not the sexual norm that uh, bothers uh, him. Uh, so what he's troubled by is his desire to humiliate and his desire to control in his sexual um, uh, fantasy. So the common thread that I see between the urban and the rural uh, contexts, the uh, across uh, genders, uh, is the is this kind of uh, uh, commonality that the taboo desires are challenging some uh, sexual uh, norm, and there is punishment. In the rural uh, instances, the punishment was more external. In the examples that I'm giving from the book, the punishments are. Uh, are self-inflicted and these are not it's not an individual thing that's happening here the and i'm now by now talk to many 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 people okay i, I don't have a quantitative kind of uh, number but i made many presentations and you know conducted many workshops been part of many courses trainings and every single time 
uh, that uh, uh, that I have talked about uh, taboo desires. Uh, you know, there has been such a strong uh, kind of expression uh, uh, on the part of others that this is something that is con in conflict with with our politics uh, and and this kind of bewilderment that how can it be that I have a fantasy like this? So I see it actually, uh, and I'm not saying it as a joke. I see it actually as an epidemic, or, or really of epidemic proportions, and it's something that we as feminists, uh, you know, we we just have to have these conversations because it's unnecessary uh, punishment that we are giving to ourselves, and it's unnecessary uh, mm. suffering. Yeah. So um, I think when you were talking about especially all the urban uh, responses, you know, as you said, middle class, educated, feminist identifying people, I was also wondering if you've seen feminism have a certain position when it comes to desire and sexual freedom, which you're referring to as, you know, now we need to have this conversation. And, you know, so have you seen a certain position? Do you see the position shifting? What do you think is happening with feminism in India? So, uh, you know, having been part of the women's movement for whatever, I don't know, like 30 odd years, that, uh, so I think that, um, you know, we rightly focused a lot on uh, violations, right? I mean, unfortunately, that obviously hasn't gone away and we're still, you know, fighting uh, that and uh, fighting for our right to say uh, no. Uh, and I think that feminism uh, has also given us uh, a confidence. It's given us... Uh, uh, you know, a sense of uh, agency, an understanding of bodily rights and uh, integrity. So there is, uh, there's actually no question about what feminism has meant for so many of us in terms of our, uh, you know, uh, uh, sexual uh, lives uh, individually and collectively. Uh, but uh, I think the problem is that, uh, that the conversations that we've not had and what feminism so far has largely failed to see uh, is what's happening with uh, taboo desires and what's happening with desires that seem to be in conflict with uh, feminism. And to ask the question that actually is there a conflict with feminism at all? Because I strongly believe that that's a false, it's a false uh, uh, binary, it's a false uh, conflict. And what would really, really help is if we bring into uh, the conversation uh, the unconscious and the psyche. Because, and this is not just a problem, of course, with, uh, with us as feminists, you know, generally, and you know, you know, as uh, an individual and as a group, imperfect uh, shrinks. And I'm so glad you're doing the kind of work that you're doing because we don't talk about the unconscious, right? We just go about our lives and we go about our activism and we go about our sexual lives as though only the conscious as a, is at work, as if only the rational mind and the cognitive uh, matter, when we know that's really far from the truth. Otherwise, why would there be so many things that we are completely clueless about that it doesn't make any sense? You know, for example, as activists, we know, you know, you ask anybody, you meet anybody, a friend or acquaintance, how are you doing? They say, oh my God, so tired, so exhausted, you know, really need a break. But, you know, is anybody taking a break? Like, you know, you know, and is it only that we can't take that time off? Or is there something else happening? Is there some sort of inner resistance also maybe to slowing down? Is there something psychological also happening 
with this kind of uh, sense that the world will stop turning if we take a break from our activism, you know, for a few days, you know, uh, certainly the unconscious is at play here. Or for example, you know, uh, like I'm sure a lot of your clients, uh, or maybe all of them talk about their relationships with their mothers, right? I mean, I've certainly talked about it in my five years in psychoanalysis, uh, when I was undergoing that. So, you know, why is it so complicated? I mean, like my mother was so loving, so kind, you know, I was so blessed in many ways, and yet so much irritation, you know, so much irritation, so much complexity in my relationship with her. So there's nothing, uh, if I just applied uh, the factual, cognitive, rational uh, lens to it, it will not make any sense. Why was there so much, uh, you know, angst and kind of psychic charge around my like relationship with my mother? Or, or even if you take politics, you know, like, so what's going on? Like, you know, in terms of the growing Islamophobia in the country, what is happening in neighborhoods? Why are people who've lived next to each other, you know, for years and years, sometimes even generations, you know, families have been in the same area. Why that kind of violence? You know, why that kind of hatred with people who you know, there's not even strangers coming in from the other mohalla, you know? It doesn't make any sense, right? If, if you don't use the lens of the unconscious. Or why are people voting for Hindu nationalist uh, leaders who are doing nothing to improve their uh, their economic uh, uh, life, uh, for example, or maybe, uh, you know, worsening it, actually. And, and yet the support uh, is only growing amongst uh, Hindus, right? So so uh, so I think that there is a need to, to take into account the unconscious. And certainly when we are looking at sexual uh, desires and uh, taboo desires, because it's only when you bring in the lens of the unconscious uh, can you see that actually taboo desires cannot be read in a very literal kind of way, right? See, because the unconscious is what? I mean, you know better than me, right? I mean, it's like a storehouse, right? It's a storehouse of memories, of experiences, and it kind of makes an imprint. All these memories and experiences make an imprint on us, not in our conscious minds only, but even in the unconscious. And then they express themselves in all sorts of uh, ways, so uh, uh, like in dreams, for example, right? So if I have a dream in which I am murdering my mother, surely you can't say that I uh, hate my mother and I want to kill her, right? Obviously something, it has something to do with, the dream has something to do with my relationship with my mother, but it cannot be read in a literal way that, oh, I actually want to kill my mother. Yeah, I think that maybe that is something that, um you know, falling into the trap of the literal um, when we're trying to understand stuff that say doesn't make sense. And, um, you know, feminism, activism, mainstream, any kind of information production, you know, like within the social sciences or wherever, um, you know, falling into the trap of that literal sort of way of being. I wonder if it's how we construe also of what is empowerment or what is getting ahead in life what is feminist because a lot of the times I have seen that the flip side happens you know like um the sense of like uh, I, I used to watch this show um, four more short series and uh, I was really waiting for the third season and the third season comes and it's I found it terrible because I felt like there was a certain character arc of the four women and then in the third season suddenly they just started behaving like men 
and i'm not saying that that's a problem but it didn't suit like how they were as people like when they came into grief or when they came into confusion they just starting started hurting people like their partners were doing whereas maybe grief for the character that they had previously would have looked kind of different you know so you know our idea of empowerment or of getting ahead in life of knowledge production of maybe intellectual and other superiority of being respectful cultured etc i feel that also unfortunately gets associated with stereotypical masculine qualities sometimes and i wonder if that's the reason for the literal um, way of doing and there is something more vulnerable about the unconscious and something because it's not so linear it's not so straightforward and we feel like you know a lot of times as women we sort of don't want to talk about softer things in front of men because we like we'll be feeding into the stereotype then then they have the right to keep us away from decision making places so we act tough around them for example right so i wonder if the resistance to seeing the unconscious and for choosing the more literal way is because of the masculinization stereotypical masculine qualities of feminism of sort of getting ahead or of academic knowledge production yeah i mean i totally totally agree with you and i think and the word that uh, when you were talking the word word that uh, really stood out for me was vulnerability and i think that there is uh, there are so many ways in which we uh, as uh, feminists uh, i think are trying to make ourselves feel safer uh, and uh, Uh, and i'm speaking of myself as well i'm including myself uh, uh, in that uh, uh, in that uh, process and uh, and i think that uh, that it's not easy to open ourselves up to uncertainty and i think that that's what uh, sexuality and the erotic is essentially about right it is about the unknown it is about the uh, uh it is about that which you cannot control right and i think that on the other hand feminism you know although i think we are much better off than other ideologies in the sense that there is a lot more room for affect right we know that in terms of the special kind of camaraderie we have and you know uh and i think we're also better off because we have the feminist mantra of personalist political so actually we're in a much better place than other ideologies to kind of learn from the messiness of uh, of our personal lives and to turn that then outwards and to understand also life uh, uh, around us uh but unfortunately uh, that's not really uh, happening uh, right now in terms of uh, feminism i feel that uh, that we are i think uh, we are also trying to be safe not just as individuals collectively also we are trying to i think play uh, safe and not go uh, and and not uh, go uh, towards that uh, that that messiness uh, that is actually that there's no although there's no getting away from it uh, that we we do try and uh, i think protect ourselves in many uh, different uh, uh, ways and um, um and i think that the other thing is that um just returning to that point about the unconscious i think one thing that would really help us in in staying with the discomfort in staying with that vulnerability is to understand actually that uh what uh, bruce fink 
this uh, psychoanalyst, one of my favorite psychoanalyst uh, writers, uh, what he says very succinctly uh, that prohibition eroticizes, that it is precisely that which is taboo that turns us on, right? And the, the forbidden, and we know that from our lives, right? Right from bunking in school to maybe, you know, uh, like that erotic charge of being attracted to your best friend's lover or something like that, you know? those uncomfortable places. So, uh, so, so of course, it is precisely that which is not okay that's going to turn us on. And that's not just about mainstream uh, uh, taboos, right? It's also about feminist taboos. And if I am a feminist, at least in my experience, I think it's precisely because I'm a feminist, maybe, that I find touching feminist taboos to be very hot that for me to actually have fantasies in which there's all this sort of uh, messiness and topsy-turviness and, you know, uh, uh, challenging of consent or, um, or mutuality, dignity, uh, that kind of a thing, that maybe it's, it's hot precisely because I'm a feminist. Like, I give a damn about mainstream norms, you know. Uh, like, it's been a lot, it's been a lot, understand kar liya. feminism has really helped us with that, right? But I think the erotic charge maybe now is really playing with, with the stuff that uh, feminism, which runs in my blood, what feminism holds to be precious, maybe it's actually playing with that, that is, uh, that is uh, where the erotic charge uh, lies. And not as a contradiction to feminism, mm -hmm. but, but, but precisely because I'm a, a, I am a feminist and also uh, and, and the many ways in which this can help, right? It can, uh, to, to recognize that there's no conflict, to recognize that it's because the unconscious is at play, because there's also a collective unconscious which is at play, not just an individual unconscious. Yeah. Like that can really help us like stop this useless suffering of you know self-flagellation ki hai what kind of a feminist am i how can i have desires uh, like this you know or uh, that there's some kind of a conflict with my uh, politics like if only we could have these conversations uh, bring in the unconscious you know recognize that it's precisely that which is taboo that's going to turn us on precisely that uh, feminist holds to be taboo that might uh, you know uh, uh, turn us on that we'll judge ourselves less we'll judge each other less and how fantastically important that is for feminist solidarities right yeah. Yeah. and and not just that I think it's really important for us to do better politics mm. because it's from that standing in that place of messiness mm. of discomfort of uh, hum of feeling humbled you know, uh, by this conflict, we can actually uh, look around us and see much better that that the the you know this thing of rationality actually is not helping us understand anything around us. You know, so so this personal uncomfortable place where we think our desires are in conflict with feminism is actually also a very productive place and can can maybe even help us listen better to each other. Because even if you take the example of domestic violence, okay, I'll say this from the inside as a feminist who's been, you know, in the fight against gender-based violence, like we all have been, uh, you know, and one thing that we are really bad at uh, collectively is to understand what's happening with the survivor of domestic violence and why is that survivor continuously going back to the abusive uh, partner, right? We don't have a clue. 
I mean, of course, we know that it's societal thing, pressure, economic pressure, you know, the uh, the kind of uh, stigma of being a single wom woman. We know the economic factors. We know the uh, the social factors. But beyond the point, we don't understand, even if we are giving that woman all the support that we can, so the economic doesn't matter so much. You know, we also, we have a sense of community. So maybe social also, it kind of becomes less important. And yet, why is she repeatedly going back to that abusive partner? And I don't think we have, we've been able to listen well enough. Mm -hmm. And maybe we will listen better mm -hmm. if we are in that, if you're standing in that place of uh, uh, personal and collective kind of uh, messiness, wow. you know, with a greater openness, mm -hmm. uh, uh, with, a, uh, with a greater kind of openness also that maybe the unconscious is at work in ways that we don't uh, understand, which doesn't mean that we're not going to uh, uh, support her uh, as much as we did, which it'll also mean that we'll repeatedly, you know, keep saying to her, Kya kar rahi hai? why are you going back? You know, but maybe we listen differently. Maybe we'll intervene uh, uh, differently or even, or even with the, even uh, with this example of Hindu nationalism, you know, I mean, the way in which liberals and as progressives, we haven't a clue, right? We don't know what's going on. What is this kind of growing tornado? Like what is going on? Why are more and more and more people like uh, being swept uh, by this? So, so I think that we need to tap into that productive power of these, you know, of this, yeah. Yeah, of the seeming conflict between taboo desires and our uh, and our uh, politics, seeming conflict because it's not really our conflict, mm -hmm. uh, and and to from that, but th that's a good place because it helps us challenge mm -hmm. this kind of the dominance of rationality, mm -hmm. and I think it's very good for us as as activists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think well, that place that you're describing, I think it might also allow us to sort of humanize whatever we consider the other, right? Like sometimes it could be uh, the victim of domestic violence because they do get othered by activists sometimes, you know, as people who should maybe know better, but they don't. Yeah. Or, or, you know, yeah. poor, poor them sort of a othering. That is one othering that happens. The other othering is also like the political other, right? Like the right-wing person or whatever that is. I think, but like your own uh, messiness might help you like sort of humanize these other positions that these others have rather than, oh, they are out there and like I can't understand them at all in that sense. And even uh, that's uh, really important what you're saying. And I think that the othering happens also within the context of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Because as a queer activist, I remember like I'm, I'm now talking about the decade of like uh, the uh, 2000 uh, onwards, when many of us as queer feminists were trying to engage with other uh, uh, feminists, you know, about... Uh, uh, about queer desires, and uh, I think one of the things that uh, we faced is is othering. You know, is okay. Then the uh, the straight identifying feminist uh, wanting to be the ally from a safe uh, distance, saying, okay, like okay, now after all this, like you know, conversation, argument, whatever, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I would call them educational processes uh, that you know, uh, but coming to a place then. But from a safe distance, being the ally, you know, everybody's very, all progressives are very keen to be allies. 
from a safe uh, distance. And that, but that is also another thing, right? Uh, because then uh, it's much easier for the straight feminist to offer her support from a, a, a distance, from a safe distance, rather than maybe uh, be open to any stirrings of desire for another a woman or a trans person within herself. Okay, you know that. In fact, uh, in fact, I am also remembering like uh, an earlier time, you know, before the the queer uh, uh, discourse, uh, you know, really uh, uh, took off. Uh, in a sense, there was much more exploration amongst, uh, you know, uh, women, uh, friends uh, of a kind of a erotic uh, uh, intimacy, you know, uh, and then the the barriers got uh, drawn much more formally, actually, uh, when all this talk about, about allies and all, uh, and identity uh, politics. Uh, 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 the other instance of uh, uh, other thing that I want to share with you is from my BDSM and kink uh, uh, context, uh, because uh, there again, uh, you know, uh, where you'll have, I, I, in fact, I'll, I'll share an example of uh, a workshop that we did with mental health professionals, because as part of the Kinky Collective, one of our dreams, one of our fantasies is to have a national kind of network of kink uh, aware uh, mental health professionals. And we've done, uh, you know, several workshops uh, uh, so far. And now what we've started saying in these workshops is that don't be the kind progressive mental health professionals who wants to help the kinky clients, okay? Uh, yeah, of course, you know that as well. But how about connecting with your own taboo desires? Okay, and, and don't do this othering. Because at the end of the day, we are all kinky, right? I mean, because if we are defining kink, uh, not in narrow identity uh, terms, but we are saying that kink is uh, playing with power. If kink is about uh, recognizing that it's not just pleasure, but it's also pain that might turn us on, then surely we are all kinky, right? I mean, anybody, anybody who's uh, experienced a love bite uh, knows that uh, uh, that uh, pain can be pleasurable. Or anybody who, whose hands have been held down on uh, the bed while having sex uh, knows that there is an erotic charge to giving up power or to exercising power, right? So we're all on that spectrum of uh, kink. So in one of these workshops, uh, what we did is that we asked the mental health professionals to, um, uh, to write down their own uh, 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 desires which they've not shared with anybody so far and uh, we did it anonymously so at the end of the first day they wrote down their uh, desires when they went home and brought it the next day and we uh, as facilitators uh, from the kinky collective we read out those uh, uh, those uh, fantasies and you know kinky as hell the fantasies Okay, it was like the works from abduction fantasy to rape fantasy to uh, spanking to voyeurism to like you name it. And in that small group of 15 people, we had a nice variety of like kinky fantasies. Okay, so now it doesn't matter beyond the point now whether they are saying, oh, I am from the BDSM community or not. You know, most welcome, please join because there, you know, there's lots of advantages because you have the security of a community you know where consent is sacrosanct where it's a very non-judgmental space but anyway ju just to say that that the othering is something that happens a lot with taboo desires you know it used to happen a lot more with queer desires it's happening now with uh, with kinky desires and uh, and we really need to stop this 
othering uh, business uh, and to be really open to the stirrings of uh, uh, desire uh, within uh, ourselves, you know, uh, not just for our own erotic fulfillment. I mean, of course, that too, because it's hot, right? It's hot to have taboo desires. It's hot to touch uh, taboo desires. So, of course, at a personal level in terms of erotic fulfillment, but also as as feminists to be less judgmental uh, of each other, uh, to be in that difficult uh, place and to use that difficult place well to do better politics. I think what you're saying also reminds me of this uh, podcast I'd heard in which Alok Vedmanen was talking about like whenever they go to these um, places with like like straight people or whatever, like mainstream sort of people, um, people are like, how can we help you or you people? And then Alok was like, you know, like we are okay. Like we know we are trans and you're already transgressing gender norms and whatnot. You, you first ask how you can help yourself. <laughs> because actually you may need the help because you are the one who's kind of still following the boxes in that yeah. you know yeah and and you know there are I think there's uh, but what would really help I think if that amongst us as feminists mm-hmm. if there are more voices you know talking about how taboo desires are not in conflict with feminism and I just wanted to share with you uh, unfortunately I, I couldn't find any Indian instances but I just wanted to share with you two, uh, you know, uh, feminists in the US mm. and what they said. Huh? I'll just quickly read out uh, uh, what I found very uh, nice and useful. So there's uh, 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 Pat uh, Califia, uh, who's a US-based writer, who was also active in the historic lesbian BDSM groups, uh, group Samoa's. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's S-A-M-O-I-S. And uh, um, so uh, they make the distinction, and this is in quotes, what really gets us wet versus, in again in quotes, what we think should get us wet. And I thought this is a really good uh, kind of a thing, you know, what really gets us wet and what we think should get us wet. Like the two are not really going to... Uh, 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 you know, uh, come together, if I may use a pun. Um, then the other quote is from uh, Simone de Beauvoir in earlier time, 1953, uh, when she uh, wrote that, and this is a quote, no aphrodisiac is so potent as deviance of the good. Mm. So, you know, these are things that have been recognized by feminists. And I, and I really want to quote and share with you uh, my feminist, uh, uh, my, sorry, my favorite feminist psychoanalytic uh, writer, uh, Jacqueline Rose. Uh, and uh, so what she writes actually is, is, resonates with uh, much of what we've been uh, discussing uh, and what you were saying about uh, feminism and masculinity and the danger of that. Uh, so uh, she writes, and I'm quoting here, feminism should alert us to the world's reason but it should also insist that to respond by making reasons dictate our sole mantra and guide is as impoverishing as it is deluded and dangerous. So, you know, she's saying on the one hand, of course, you know, we have to like uh, fight unreason at, at one level, but it, that can't be our mantra. That can't be the only thing 
ஒன்னுலேஷன் however free we think we are it is in the sexual undercurrents of our lives where all certainties come to grief and this point about certainties actually is so important and i think as feminists we must talk about are we are we wanting to embrace certainty in such ways that it's stifling us yeah you know so um seeing this very curious trend these days i mean maybe it's like an older term but i'm seeing a lot more reels on it now about the pick me girl you know of this person um usually a woman who will say things that men like to hear that oh i'm not like other girls and all of that stuff and this person is now being branded as the pick me girl that she wants to be picked at the expense of her sisters or the other women or the solidarity or all of that and you know like yes at one level that's like okay you've made like correct maybe evaluation of what's happening but there is a there is a reduction of the importance of being picked you know like that's been dismissed as not an important enough thing in favor of the feminist solidarity you shouldn't want to be picked compared to being in solidarity with your sisters right so there is this sense of like desire utna zaruri nahi hona chahiye of being picked by a guy your solidarity with your other women should have been more important so there is this sense of being in the certain you know i've reduced this girl to oh maybe she's stupid basically that's what i'm saying that she's stupid to want to be desired by a guy yeah. rather than being in solidarity with her other women yeah and i think this uh, this desire for certainty in uh, in the way that we talk about sexuality is so uh, pervasive and it, it's so harmful I just wanted to share something actually uh, with from within the uh, the BDSM community and I'm making a distinction now between kink and BDSM because BDSM there is a community right so there is a, also a specificity uh, to that and uh, so you know we've been having some difficult uh, conversations uh, within the community because uh, <clears throat> you know there is a way in which uh, negotiations uh, before play right play is that a period of uh, time it could be 2 hours it could be you know two days or whatever one week but it's that designated period of time where people are then entering into uh, into uh, uh, either playing with power or fetishes or um, impact play or whatever it is you're going into a certain uh, zone and before that you're doing your consent uh, you know negotiations so of course it's very very important that whoever's playing whether it's two or more people everybody has to be on the same page about their approach to consent right because my approach to consent could be very different from yours so there needs to be a kind of an agreement about uh, that that's very very important but i i think in a post me too kind of context this is my personal uh, reading uh, i think what's happening is that there is a very high premium being placed on a certain kind of negotiation in which in a great amount of detail uh, there's a desire to know exactly what is going to transpire during play 
uh, okay, like, and, and also a lot of emphasis on acts, you know, what is it that I want? Like, I, I'm also a submissive, so I'm saying more from a sub submissive's point of view that I hear more and more this thing about that, oh, okay, this is what I want. You know, this is what turns me on. So, okay, I want to be spanked. I want to be humiliated. I want to be, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, something, whatever, this kind of role play. That's what I want. Okay, nothing wrong with that. That's that's great. But is there a danger? <clears throat> is there a danger in which even something like kink, which is actually an exploration as wide as the ocean, you know, there is actually it's an endless, endless ocean of possibilities and, and an endless exploration of the unknown, full of surprises. Uh, <clears throat> where is there a danger that we are also trying to be more secure uh, in, in trying to script the play uh, more and more, uh, in, time, in trying to focus more on acts rather than a power dynamic? Uh, okay, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I'm just raising this in the context of Perhaps it's a collective desire, not just individual, because it seems to be happening a lot. Is there a desire for uh, for a kind of a certainty of or, or, or not wanting to be made to feel uncomfortable, or to be in that mode of uh, of uh, of pleasure, of known pleasures, you know? And and perhaps uh, I mean, at least uh, from me and and uh, many of us, um, you know. Uh, uh, in in the in the kinky collective, you know that uh, that we do feel that it is the exploration of the unknown that is so uh, precious uh, in uh, in kink. And of course, you you know, but also knows where some of this is coming from because you have all these idiotic men, you know, who kind of pose as dominance. We call them the kneel bitch dominance. You know, where in the first interaction they're saying kneel bitch. <laughs> you know, where they have no clue about power dynamics actually, you know. Um, so one also knows, and in a Me Too context also, you know, that's also influenced it. So one knows where it's coming from. But I'm just sharing this uh, as a concern because uh, whether it's the BDSM community or not, surely uh, an openness to uncertainty is precious. It's important. It's hot. You know, and it's politically very, very important. Uh, and one can actually call it like the politics of uncertainty, as opposed to the politics of certainty that the right wing uh, uh, offers. So just to return to Jacqueline Rose, she talked about Trump, okay, and about the transphobia of Trump supporters and said that there is a certainty that Trump supporters sought in gender roles. This is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman, right? So you don't want that uncertainty. You want the certainty of bad patriarchal tradition. <clears throat> then also about uh, Boris Johnson uh, in during the Brexit, uh, uh, you know, uh, dialogues or discussions and disagreements, uh, Boris Johnson said that his position is very clear on Brexit and that the UK should uh, exit. And, uh, and he said, my uh, policy is that of no ifs, no buts. Okay, that is the politics of certainty. No ifs, no buts. You know, is that the kind of feminism we want? 
And of course, coming closer to home, uh, you have Hindu nationalist leaders continuously offering uh, Hindus, this is how our glorious past used to be. This is how Muslims are. With great certainty, they are having all the fun. I mean, forget the death threats and the violent trolling online, but Muslims are having all the fun. Look at how they're enjoying, always enjoying, enjoying their festivals, enjoying our women, taking away our women. You know, so the certainty of that discourse about the uh, the uh, the other uh, and the certainty of Hindu khatre mein hai. You know, so we know that politics of certainty. So we really need to come together as feminists and really, you know, talk about what is, what is how do we feel about that politics of certainty? Are there times when we ourselves are feeling attracted to that uh, politics of certainty? And can taboo desires actually help us go to that place of uncertainty and embrace a politics of uncertainty? And, and where might that take us? Yeah. Um, I was listening to something the other day where, um, you know, it was about like applying the lens of the psyche to sort of like the div divisive uh, tendencies today. And uh, one person in the audience was responding to the speaker saying that they had attended something by some, I think, sociologist or anthropologist who sat and actually figured like how is the public, how much of the public is actually extremist. And so it seems like it's only 7% on the left and the right, which are extremists. And the rest of the people kind of just want to get on with their day, basically, you know. And so in concluding that uh, conversation, the person said something which like I found very important that the right excludes, uh, the right excludes and the left cancels. But basically, they are mirror images of each other in that sense, because both are very certain positions. So I think as we draw to the end of our conversation also, I think my question to you is that, do you think there is something that might help people stomach uncertainty? Is there something that, you know, you feel like you've applied, like you've also gone from seeking certainties to being okay with uncertainty? Is there like an ingredient, a mindset, anything that could be like a stepping stone towards this? So I think uh, conversations about the unconscious and the psyche, for sure. I think it's a it's a fantasy to assume that uh, life within and around us is only about the conscious uh, mind. So I think as feminists, we have to start talking about the unconscious and about the psyche. Uh, and I think uh, and I think creating. Uh, uh, communities, and I don't mean like large communities, maybe even smaller, even just friends, even just like small online groups or you know, whatever, friends that we known from school, college, I don't know, workplace. And I, I know uh, maybe uh, uh, just just seeing what non-judgmental, you know, feminist communities uh, might uh, feel like. And, um, and I want to uh, share with you, I mean, I'm not offering this as some kind of uh, uh, magic potion type of thing and it can't be but I just wanted to share with you a recent uh, uh, experience uh, <clears throat> which is that of uh, this the Kinky Collective organized the first National Kink Festival in Goa last month uh, and we called it the Kink Con and uh, you know some 80 people from the BDSM community from uh, NGOs like uh, Agents of Ishq and uh, Mariwala Health Institute uh, Nirantar uh, <clears throat> Nazaria, huh? but but largely people from the BDSM community came together 
and we had uh, of course lots of fun fashion shows there was an auction uh, where people were selling you know like uh, okay you can flog me and how much are you going to pay to flog me uh, you know so and we were raising money because we we're a non-funded group we were raising money to have a, a traveling national photo exhibition so we were raising money so lots of like fun stuff happened but we also had some uh, theater and some difficult uh, conversations uh, so for example uh, is there a danger of new normativities even in the BDSM community of who's a good dominant, who's a bad dominant? You know, are there normativities around this is the right way to do consent uh, negotiations? Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, also conversations around uh, is it always a consent violation? Even when I'm experiencing it as a con consent violation, is it important to also look at uh, intention and intent? Maybe it was a consent uh, accident. And then is there an individual and collective uh, willingness to grant that as a possibility? Uh, or uh, or is there what you, I mean, we didn't use that language, but it reminds me of what you were saying about that cancel culture. Uh, you know, because there is a certain delicious enjoyment of the cancel culture, right? So do we want to indulge in, in, in that? Uh, or do we want to be open to other uh, possibilities and the possibilities of dialogue? Uh, so these were very difficult uh, conversations. And there was disagreement and there was heated, heated upness. And, uh, you know, so it wasn't all like tra-la-la-la. But I thought it was so fantastic that overall what dominated in those three days that we were together uh, was... Uh, was the sense of community, uh, was the high uh, of being part of that community. And it is, I'm not saying it's a perfect community, but it's a highly non-judgmental community, which is excited about taboo desires. I mean, taboo desires is what this community is constructed around. <laughs> so we it's not just that we're non-judgmental, we are like go with consent, of course, go all out to explore uh, you know, uh, taboo desires and uh, where that uh, might uh, take us. So what was beautiful was that the, the disagreement and the negative toxic energy that can dominate did not dominate. And actually what stayed was the good stuff, you know, was the camaraderie, was the feeling of community. And I think that that's because people were getting their high people were getting their psychic erotic charge mm. from the good stuff you know yeah. and so the bad stuff if i can use that binary you know so the uh, the 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 delicious yeah. the deliciousness of disagreement the deliciousness of wanting to cancel uh, somebody uh, that did not uh, prevail mm. you know to me, it was just like a wow kind of, uh, yeah. uh, you know, experience. And I'm not saying this is like some replicable <laughs> yeah. model, but but I think it uh, it helped me see that actually, uh, like what you were saying about that uh, presentation, that uh, that like we all we all need mm. we all need to touch taboo, right? Yeah. So if I'm a very goody-goody activist, right, and if I get the chance to lash out at somebody because their feminism is not as good as mine, mm -hmm. I'm going to do it because the internet and Twitter is giving me that chance to lash That's out, it. right? Yeah, yeah. Not because I'm a bad person, 
but everybody but because that sense of power and i'm not admitting that i need it so then i seek it in this sort of way yeah well i, I wouldn't just say power i would say it's the need to touch the taboo mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so feminism says uh, you know sisters i'm sorry i'm caricaturing but you know whatever like uh, and it's not just women, of course yeah but yeah let's let, the feminist solidarity of listening to each other of working things through you know these are like uh, uh, feminist principles and then the deliciousness actually of of just hitting out at somebody online mm-hmm. like oh your your uh, feminism is crap mm-hmm. compared to uh, to mine you know mm-hmm. so i'm saying that there is a there is a deliciousness in that uh, touching that taboo desire and not because i'm a bad, bad person it's like i hardly ever get the chance to mm-hmm. be <laughs> yeah to yeah. be bad you know and uh, but uh, but uh, but i think that the more we are able to connect with uh, taboo uh, sexual uh, desires i mean i just think it can only be better uh, mm. better for us it's just a better way of getting that high yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. where where actually it's much better for feminist solidarities <laughs> rather than cancel culture yeah and i was thinking the way you described the way that the um, you know the king con happened it almost sounds like you know like if collectively you have a secure attachment with something like because that's sort of the crux of secure attachment right that where you have something to fall back on is why you don't need to do anything more severe to guard yourself you have that sort of safety behind you and so you can go and explore and exactly like that you know just unconsciously got created over there this sense of safety that we are all here for this common experience did help everyone tolerate the disagreements without going into defenses we usually go into which is cancelling or excluding or reducing othering etc totally totally so i think it's that thing of safety and adventure that yeah. we need safety to undertake adventures mm-hmm. and adventures can be of the cancel culture variety adventures mm-hmm. can be of the hindu nationalist variety adventures can be the taboo desire Mm. variety uh, as well mm. and uh, i think that uh, the more we can make ourselves feel uh, safe mm. uh, within ourselves and as feminist uh, communities the more we might be able to t- undertake adventures of the uh, mm. of the erotic uh, uh, kind yeah yeah um so yeah i'm done with sort of questions or reflections from my side anything else you would want to add before we wrap up for the day uh no i think that's it's been oh. it's been great i really enjoyed also you know uh, for me uh, like because you asked about uh, uh, things like in different contexts i think that also helped me look back at my earlier kind of uh, work mm-hmm. and to to even look at what uh, what that work in a rural context mm-hmm. meant in terms of taboo desires you know i'd not seen it in that kind of lens but then to be able to see that continuity mm-hmm. of taboo desires uh, and how actually precious they are and productive they are in in challenging uh, social norms challenging sexual norms mm-hmm. and how like gail rubin says no we are punished for mm-hmm. breaking sexual norms and we are we enjoy privileges if we subscribe to sexual norms you know so we also need to look at the politics of that privileges and uh, punishments Mm-hmm. and to also see how we are punishing ourselves mm-hmm. as individuals and as uh, as uh, collectively as uh, feminists and how unnecessary that 
punishment and self-flagellation is about how my fantasies don't uh, fit in with my politics. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Fortunate. rather than rather than that self-punishment, mm -hmm. uh, to actually stay in that place and do better feminist uh, mm -hmm. politics. Yeah. Makes sense. And uh, yeah, like if somebody wants to like see maybe attend a workshop by Kinky, uh, should they write to you or how does it go? Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, the the email. Maybe when you uh, put this out, you mm -hmm. can share the email is uh, uh, hmm, is the kinky group at gmail.com. It's quite easy. And we're also on Instagram, mm -hmm. on Twitter, on Facebook. Yeah. So so people yeah, are most uh, welcome to uh, to write to us and uh, uh, yeah. All right. So yeah. thank you so much. It has been like a lovely conversation. I would urge all the listeners to attend one workshop uh, of Kinky because I think not just like if you're working with people and you want to know Kink, but I think it's a paradigm shift in general. You know, it kind of helps you understand what quote unquote does not make sense about people. It it gives you a lens to look at stuff like that, even if you're not working with sexuality directly with your clientele. So yeah, um, that brings us to the end of our conversation today. Um, हम जानते हैं कि आज की बात 90-95% इंग्लिश में हुई है हम कोशिश करेंगे फ्यूचर में शायद कभी इसे हिंदी में भी ट्रांसलेट करने के लिए या वापस रिकॉर्ड करने के लिए बट इन द मीन टाइम अगर आपको कोई डाउट्स हैं आप चाहते हैं कि हम आपके साथ ज्यादा रिसोर्सेज शेयर करें कुछ और बातें करें तो हमें आप ई कर सकते हैं गुफ्तगु थेरेपी एट जी मेल डॉट कॉम पे थैंक यू थैंक यू